Hi, I'm David Freudberg. This podcast derives from the Humankind Public Radio series, which I began hosting back in 1997. Our program recognizes how hard it can be, but also how necessary, for us to hold on to our humanity. So we've sought out people with stories that illustrate how they approach that quest. To aim high, to treat others as we'd like to be treated, to see others as more similar to us than different, to strive for patience and personal grace even in adversity, to be part of the solution, not the problem. We hope our podcast helps to reinforce and inspire your own quest. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and the Network Incorporated. Students pick up whether they are being valued, whether they're being respected, whether they matter. And that can be communicated in all kinds of ways, from the tone of a teacher's voice to the stuff that's being taught to the sense that a student has that that somebody's working hard for them. As schools are pressed to teach basic skills, how do we view the overall purpose of education? You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. It's a time of unease in American public education, not just from the funding cutbacks that pinch many schools in a period of austerity, or the host of society's problems that spill into life at school, but also from the anxiety provoked by a relentless regimen of high-stakes standardized testing. Yet for author Mike Rose, a professor of education at UCLA, there are many hopeful moments when the wonder of genuine learning resounds in our schools. And to witness some of those moments, as told in his popular book, Possible Lives, Mike Rose set off on a journey. Whenever I could get time off, I went for over a period of four years around the country looking at good public school classrooms, uh, rural and urban, the South, the Northeast, Midwest, uh, border towns, you name it. And my goal was to try and document what goodness looks like in classrooms. And I particularly focused on classrooms in areas that for the most part were pretty poor because those are the areas that are the focus of school reform all the time and our collective wringing of our hands about what we need to do as a nation. And the wringing of the hands is justifiable because we do need to We do absolutely need to address the fact that we do a bad job by a lot of kids. The litany of complaints about schools range from failure in some cases to impart basic skills, to the problem of undisciplined students who disrupt education, to overcrowded classrooms, to concerns about violence, safety, and drugs at school. But it's an interesting thing to focus on the good especially at a time of, of such dismissal of public education. And I got to see young people from all walks of life and all regions. I got to see them engaged with school and doing smart things. I got to see teachers who really cared and were sharp and thoughtful. And when you see this time and again, 
it begins to accumulate into this kind of anthology of possibility in your head. I mean, it's almost like what humanistic psychology was about, right? This, let's look at healthy examples of humanity and see what they teach us. And so in that same way, looking at these classrooms became over time this kind of journey through the good that gave me this rich sense of what is possible in school. And that got me to think of how problematic our typical critique of school is, the kind of critique that we hear all the time and that we live with. People say, oh, you know, the public schools have failed. Or, geez, one talk host here in Los Angeles called them garbage, of all things. I mean, the kinds of, of things that are said about the schools and the children in them are just abhorrent. And it, it, made, me, it made me realize how powerful and important it is to have a critique that is built on images of possibility rather than just despair. The images described in Mike Rose's book, Possible Lives, include a 10th grade history class in Chicago where students became animated while turning over the question of whether the Constitution gives an absolute right to free speech. And the elementary school class in a poor section of Baltimore where kids are reading a story about tiny crustaceans known as hermit crabs and then observe actual hermit crabs in different water temperatures to answer a first grader's question of where they like to live. These opportunities to enrich a young person's life mean a lot to Professor Mike Rose. Let me give you just a little bit of background. I'm the first person in my family to graduate from college. And in fact, I'm probably about the third, maybe fourth person to graduate from high school even. So my, my family, they were Italian immigrants, uh, working class folks. My mother had to drop out of school in the seventh grade to take care of the family. My father didn't have any education at all. Um, so my background was not atypical for a lot of working class kids or the children of immigrants, poor immigrants, working class immigrants. Um, I didn't have a very good education uh, by and large. and. It wasn't until my senior year in high school when a high school English teacher caught my fancy. He was just one of these guys that, you know, wanted to teach his heart out, and he worked like a dog, and he somehow found me. He made us write tons of papers, filled them with feedback. He got me to really pay attention to my writing, and he managed to help get me into college on probation. My my grades were pretty miserable up to meeting him. And and then at college, fortunately, I bumped into a couple teachers who really took me under their wing. And these were the kinds of people who made such a huge difference in my life. And I am convinced that that's why I ended up valuing teaching so much. And then through a kind of circuitous route, ended up being a teacher and being in education for the rest of my professional life. can't help but wonder if doing this kind of work replays in some way my own journey. It replays it again and again and again, and there's something very moving about that. Hand in glove with that, I think I have certain kinds of understandings of what it feels like to not know something, 
or what it feels like to, to, to be at sea in a classroom. Um, I, have, I certainly have a, a lived sense of what it means to be on the outside of things. And I guess I just dearly love participating in somebody else's life in a way that might make a difference in, with, with all of that, that might intervene in a way that helps somebody find their way and get on track or master something that has been difficult for them for so many years. All of that is, I think, what gives this work meaning and value to me. You have said that we've narrowed our goals for the education of young people down to whether schools train their students to be competitive members of the workforce. What evidence do you see of that, and why does it concern you? Yeah. You know, when, when the Founding Fathers, when they talked about schooling, they talked about it primarily in terms of preparation for citizenship, becoming part of the new republic. Now, what has happened is that as more and more the justification for schooling, the reason we send kids to school, is framed in terms of making them economically viable, enabling them to enter the workforce and, um, and also contributing to national prosperity. Mike Rose is quick to add that he views education as a doorway to opportunity that can equip children of low-income families to attain a higher standard of living and that he owes his own livelihood as an educator to the training he received in school. But that's only one component, says Mike Rose, of why society operates a system of education. As we continue to emphasize almost exclusively the economic, vocational purpose of schooling, and we tie that to a particular technocratic kind of assessment, that is the standardized high-stakes test, we end up with an education system that narrows rather than expands and certainly doesn't befit a democratic society. The purpose of schooling and how to evaluate whether our system of education is succeeding are topics of passionate opinions and continuous debate when teachers gather at conferences about education. Too many of the young men and women who graduate from our high schools today are not college ready. In fact, 30% of all entering freshmen need remedial education. You could do a Tony private school. Yeah, they may not lead on testing, but there's accountability. There's accountability. And we have to have that same mindset in public education. If you education, go into any good. single one of our schools, choose a student randomly, talk to them for 15 to 20 minutes, you can see that our kids have immense potential. There is nothing that these kids can't do if we as, as educators in the system are doing our jobs. Schools are so central to the culture. They're so central to the society. Mike Rose is author of Why School? They're central to the way democracy functions. They're central to the way we interact with each other. It's where we get socialized. I mean, we spend an extraordinary amount of time in school. I mean, these, these places really are immensely valuable, not just as information transfer systems, but as places where we get a sense of who we are. We get a sense of ourselves as thinkers and doers. We get a sense of ourselves as interacting with others. And all of that is embedded deeply in what democracy means.
But in recent years, schools have come under increasing pressure to show tangible effectiveness in teaching basic skills to students. Under the No Child Left Behind Act, which became law in 2002, students must be routinely tested in reading and mathematics. President George W. Bush, who signed the act, addressing the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. You, you measure every day. That's why you're successful business people. I mean, you know what your business is doing. I believe we ought to extend that same principle to our public schools and ask a simple question. Can a child read at grade level? And in order to determine that, that's, that's why you measure. There's good stuff about that. Reading and mathematics are hugely important. They're core subjects, absolutely. A very good thing, a laudable thing, is that it insisted that we shine a bright light on those kids who are not doing well in our schools. And those kids, more often than not, are poor kids, working class kids, racial and ethnic minority kids, immigrant kids. Unfortunately, though, that approach, that, that focus on taking one's place in the economy and the measurement of, one's, of, of the success of schools with a standardized testing regime ends up narrowing the kind of curriculum we've been talking about the kind of engagement with school we've been talking about. So many of the kinds of, oh, exercises and approaches that we've been discussing would be swept out of most classrooms that are under a heavy testing uh, mandate because they're not going to be tested on those standardized tests. Is it possible that some young people who are particularly good at taking tests are not necessarily good at retaining information. Different kinds of tests get at different things and call for different competencies and different skills. So the question you're raising is an interesting one, and that is, can someone be coached and taught to do well on a particular kind of test, let's say a standardized test of a re about reading passages? Could someone do okay on that kind of test, but maybe not be a very good reader? Not be somebody who's engaged in reading, not somebody who comprehends reading particularly well, not somebody who can analyze critically a passage, not somebody who could talk about that passage to somebody else in a way that engages them. Those other, the, the, everything I'm talking about now would call for other kinds of assessments, right? So you put your finger on an important point, and testing experts keep warning us about this that standardized tests of the kind that are so linked to education policy these days do certain things, but they do only certain things, and they measure only certain kinds of knowing and certain kinds of performance, and that's the problem. If you put all your eggs, if you put all your educational eggs in that one basket, then a lot of the other stuff we've been talking about just is not part of the mix, and that's going to mean that it's going to get set aside. And let me just ask you to spell out the things that you fear most will be set aside. Well, first of all, we know from research that particular subject areas are de facto being addressed less in our schools. The arts, music, literature, history, some of the social studies. So just in terms of time spent on task, you know, minutes in the day spent on these subjects, there's less of it. Things, things that could be described as providing young people with a more well-rounded life. Certainly what, we, what we've traditionally called a well-rounded education and also the kinds of things that provide the occasion for 
all the sorts of exploration and questioning and engagement that we've been talking about. So that's one concern. My second concern has to do more with, I guess, pedagogy, right, or teaching itself. And that is, if you are spending a fair amount of time prepping kids in, you know, for the reading tests, for the math tests of these particular kinds, you're teaching in a certain way. And again, I know this from my own experience. I mean, I know these tests. I, I know what it means to, to prep for them. You're teaching in a particular way, which means you can't then take advantage of so many quote-unquote teachable moments that might emerge in your, in your classroom or the kind of you know 20-minute session that maybe revolves around a rich discussion of a short story by Alice Walker. That may or may not be the kind of thing that gets reflected in that test. And so, and if the pressure on the teacher is to produce high test results, the kids could get shortchanged in the process. If the pressure on the teacher is there because the pressure is on the principal, because the pressure is on the district, I mean, you know, human beings in any job situation are going to, to some degree, respond to the incentive structure. Teachers who have been around a while, teachers who are particularly creative, um, can figure out, obviously, you know, this happens every day all the time. They figure out ways around this stuff. I mean, they figure out a way to maybe hit some test prep or whatnot and then work other things in. But that's not, it's not the easiest thing to do. The pressure against them is pushing in the opposite direction. That's right. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. We're talking with UCLA education professor Mike Rose, author of Possible Lives. For more information on this segment, The Good Classroom, please visit our website, humanmedia.org. What is your sense from your many visits to classrooms around America? of how educators generally view the students that they're responsible for teaching. What, what are their expectations of yeah. young people? You know, what we assume about each other has a huge effect on the way we interact. I mean, we know that just from our daily lives, right? It has a huge effect on how we interact and what we can draw out of each other. And I do believe that Intellectual development is intimately tied not just to the strictly cognitive things that go on in a classroom, but to the culture that's created, the atmosphere that's created, the set of beliefs that a teacher communicates. Uh, so these beliefs in what kids can do are huge. And sadly, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of variability around the nation and uh, in any district that you go into, there's a lot of variability there uh, with the teachers as to what they believe is possible or, or some of the biases that they may not even be aware of. So some teachers are underestimating the potential of their students. I think there's no doubt about that. And, and that underestimation can be based on all kinds of things. You know, it can be based on social class. It can be based on race or ethnicity. It can be based on gender. It can be based on can be generational, it can be regional, you know? I mean, folks 
country folks and city folks, right? I mean, there's all kinds of ways that, unfortunately, in the United States, we categorize each other and make judgments about each other, and it happens in all walks of life, so no big surprise that it's going to happen in a classroom. So how does a kid react when he or she senses that the teacher in charge of their education is not envisioning them as someone with the full human potential? Yeah. I remember this wonderful teacher who I observed here in Los Angeles uh, working in South Central L.A., she, she, she had been in the classroom for a very long time. She was a master teacher, and she worked a lot with young student teachers. And she, she always had this little speech that she would give them, and it was a powerful one. She would talk to them about the kids, and then at the end of the speech she would say, and don't assume that because they might not be able to read, that they can't read you. So <laughs> I think that I think kids have extraordinary antenna uh, as to um, how someone thinks about them, responds to them, and they act accordingly. Now, that's, I'm not trying to, um, I don't want to romanticize young people. I don't want to say they're always right. I mean, sometimes they make a lot of mistakes about people, uh, older people particularly. Sometimes there's such hurt and damage and defense that they carry with them that they can't see things clearly. But I think it is fair to say that they're pretty good at reading people and they know those teachers who care about them and who believe in them and they know the ones who don't and they act accordingly. So for kids who have that sensitivity, what are the dynamics in a classroom that will most promote a sense that the kids are valued and most encourage them to develop themselves. How does a teacher interact with students? How does he or she respond to their questions? All of that matters. But what's interesting to me is it's not just what somebody says. It's just how they present themselves. And students pick this up. You know, are you comfortable in your own skin? Are you comfortable with me? tone of voice becomes probably more important than the semantic content of what's said. All of that sort of thing. All that matters. And I think what matters too is, and this was something that held true for the high school English teacher that made a difference in my life. What matters is when you see somebody who is clearly working really hard for you. You know, even if you think they're not so cool, or even if you think that, that you, or even if you can't quite understand some of what they're saying, or even if they're not that skillful and adept, let's say, at presenting information, it matters so much to us that we get the sense that somebody gives a damn about us. I mean, that is a huge thing with us, and and of course, it's a huge thing with with young people. Does this person care about me? Is this person willing to go out on a limb for me? Um, this person is working hard for me, I know. Um, all of that matters. And it's reflected in a hundred different ways in a classroom. I, one of the principals that I talked to, a New York principal, when I was traveling around the country, he talked about respect in a really interesting way. He said, you know, he said, respect is really important to me, respect in the classroom. And he said, and I'm not just talking about um, civility, I said, although that's really important. But he said, does the curriculum convey respect? 
You know, does the stuff that the teacher teaches convey respect? Respect for the students, respect for their backgrounds. So that's another whole dimension to this discussion, I think. Students know right away when they're getting something that's dumbed down, when they get something, they're getting something that's patronizing. It is very caring to treat somebody as an intellectual being. How can our educational system teach kids the skills needed for critical thinking so that people are in a position to evaluate the media messages that come at us, the policies and rhetoric of our political leaders, the actions of corporations that affect our lives? How can young people be taught to make sound decisions in the world they're growing up in? Well, young people are certainly barraged with information at a rate that is unprecedented. So these critical thinking skills and the ability to evaluate messages that are coming at you, the ability to sort through information, all of this becomes even more important in our time, although it's always been important. It's always been the centerpiece of a good education. Get young people to actually sit with a text or sit with a, you know, sit with something printed out from the computer. You sit with it, you ask questions, you engage them in a conversation that requires them to investigate particular things in that text, a fact, a phrasing, the way words are used, the way something is labeled, the way something is defined. There's a real civic payoff, by the way, to learning how to do this. Have young people investigate sources. So you go on the computer, you find something, and you give them a set of questions to ask. Who issues this information? Who are they? What can you find out about them? So if it's about a drug, is this information coming from a pharmaceutical company? Is it coming from an independent research group? Um, who's supporting it? So you teach them how to look behind the material that's right in front of them. In terms of popular culture, oh my gosh, you know, there's so many teachers who work with this and work with it really well. You get young people to question the kinds of images that surround them, especially the images about themselves. And who's supporting all this? Again, follow the money. And then, of course, the, 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 the power of getting them to interact with each other um, around these questions and around these artifacts and around these images that so surround them. And the images that surround young people can be harsh. We live in a time particularly marked by multiple crises, from economic pain to environmental threats to the risk of terrorism and violence. In this climate, can our educational system offer hope and a positive future to young people? You know, we, we see so many images of young people, both in popular culture as, you know, as well as on the 6 o'clock news, right? We see so many images of young people as, you know, as disaffected and, and uh, lost or angry, violent. And, and of course, you know, those are all true. I mean, if, being young is no picnic. And, and, and we, anybody who's worked in schools knows so many examples of kids in such dire straits. But we can't let that crowd out, this, the, the, this whole other side of the picture. The young people who come alive in the right kinds of conditions. Uh, and that's what our job as adults is to do. 
in a society is to create multiple sites of those kinds of conditions, not only in schools, but in all kinds of places. We can't sit back and bemoan what goes on with young people if we are not creating these multiple opportunities for young people to grow. And you know what is, of course, so fascinating, and all youth workers and all teachers know this. A number of those kids who are disaffected, who are angry, put in those right kind of circumstances, begin to shift the way they see themselves and the way they interact with others. I've seen it so many times. I've seen it so many times. UCLA education professor Mike Rose is author of Possible Lives. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston and The Network Incorporated. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1 800 5 Listen. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, The Good Classroom with Mike Rose, is Humankind Program number 148. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.